Well, good morning and welcome everyone to another edition of the Hall Call interview series and podcast. I, as always, am Will Driscoll, the executive director here at the Virginia Sports Hall of Fame, and I'm happy to once again bring you another edition of Hall Call. Before we get started, I'd like to thank all of our sponsors who help us put on programs like Hall Call and everything we do here at the Hall of Fame, the Beck Foundation, Priority Automotive, Davcon Inc., Centera Health Plans, White Claw Hard Seltzer, and Priority Auto Sports Radio 94.1. It's because of them we're allowed to do much of what we do here at the Virginia Sports Hall of Fame. And speaking of that, one of the things that we do that's most important here is our induction, and that's just 53 days away as we sit here today. And our guest today is a big part of this year's induction. Rick Jeffrey worked with Special Olympics Virginia for 36 years, the last 22 of those as president, the longest serving president in Special Olympics Virginia history, Rick gained support from multiple large scale fundraising events each year across the Commonwealth, which in turn helped provide support for 22,000 Special Olympic athletes on and off the field. It was through these efforts he was selected the Class of 2024 Distinguished Virginian Award recipient. Rick, Thank you so much for taking some time to join us today. I know the weather's nice outside. You'd probably be golfing, but we're grateful that you're here today. Well, thanks, Will. It's great to be here. And I, as I told you, you know, back in the fall, uh, uh, it's a great honor and it's very humbling because Special Olympics Virginia is not and never has been about me. It's about the 22,000 athletes that you just mentioned and, and their families and their struggle every day to be included in a meaningful way in your life or our lives or the lives of their communities. You know, I, I've done a lot of research. We've obviously talked on the phone a few times, but, you know, kind of going through the process of the Hall of Fame, I, I read the nomination file. Uh, I've read a lot of the articles that have been written about you during your time at Special Olympics. And one of the things that stuck out to me uh, throughout the whole process was you were quoted once as saying Special Olympics is the greatest use of sports you have ever seen. Can you tell us why? Yeah, Um you know, we, we listen. Uh, the reason that we're all here is because we love sports. We, we, I mean, we live in a, a world of competition and domination and accumulation. So, I mean, I, you know, we're all in that and love sports because of we root for our teams or, or whatever. But this is the this is using sports will to build a world that's more inclusive. I, I will give you just one simple opinion here, and that is that the biggest problem that is facing the world today, it could be in our communities, it could be in our neighborhoods, it could be anywhere on the globe, is uh, is exclusion and people's inability to overcome their differences and no longer fear their neighbor. Uh, and so instead of getting together, people exclude. And we have always looked at Special Olympics as a mission, um, we didn't look at it as a job. We didn't look at it as a process. We looked at it as a mission to be able to take that thing that we all love so much, which is sport, and use it to attack what we see as the number one problem in the world, people's inability to include each other meaningfully in their lives. And, and we asked people after a time, because listen, I'll also tell you that Special Olympics is not an event. Mm -hmm. It's an experience. And we asked people as they had that experience to be able to take that thought about inclusion and extrapolate that out from the disability and apply it to race or religion or gender or socioeconomic or age or anything else that we use in, in the world to divide us and, and we used the sport uh, to bridge that gap and bring people with and without disabilities and with and without intellectual disabilities together 
but if you extrapolate it out, you, you can uh, you can also see where uh, it can be. Uh, th this whole process can be used to include people because if we can do that, a lot of the other problems that we think are more important could be solved. That, I, that listen, this doesn't come to you in working in Special Olympics like overnight. Okay, this is something that you work at for a while. I mean, I I, I went in there because I thought it was just a great use of sport. We were making people's lives better. We were helping people. Um, and over a period of time, through the experiential process, you realize, whoa, there's something bigger going on here. Um, these people have value. Uh, these people are real. They want to be nothing more than your neighbor or your classmate or your friend or your coworker. And, and so when you begin to look at it as an inclusive process, it, it's a whole different ballgame. So that's that's kind of a long explanation to a simple question. But, uh, you know, we're using sport to build a more inclusive world. And, and sport has the power to engage and bring people together. And, and when people are together, they can learn more about the value of each other. Well, one of our core values at the Hall, and everything you said just falls right in line with, with what I'm about to say. One of our core values at the Hall is impact. You know, we have recognition, we have impact, we have integrity. Those are our three core values. And recognition is is obviously celebrating our inductees, exhibits, the the induction event itself. You know, we we recognize athletic excellence. But impact is is really where we want to continue to grow that platform because sports participation is so important for youth athletes, for Special Olympics athletes because of inclusion and opportunity. And just hearing everything that you just said really falls in line with that with that core value of impact here at the Hall. But you obviously mentioned that it wasn't something that happened overnight. You were a referee. You were a Division I referee at the time when you made the transition into the Special Olympics organization. What was it that kind of got you, I don't want to say over the hump, but pulled you into the organization? Um, yeah, I'll tell you exactly the story because I, I, it's a it's a providential thing, Will. Uh, you know, I'm referring a game in Roanoke. Um, I don't even remember who was playing. I'm referring a game in Roanoke. This is probably the night, the 85, 86 basketball season. And it's it's back in the day, speaking of inclusion and uh, and and equity. Um, it's back in the day when they played the women's games as a, at, you know, at six and the men's games at eight. Mm -hmm. And, um, but they're all playing in the same venue. And so the referees, uh, I was refereeing the men's game and we're in the locker room before getting ready to go out and we're sitting there and they re got referees, there's two guys working the women's game came into the locker room and we were just chatting, <clears throat> excuse me. And one of the guys says, well, I work for special Olympics. Um, and I said to him, that's really, that's great. What a great organization. I mean, it was really, you know, and I said to him what people have said to me a thousand times since I began to work at Special Olympics. And it was a flip remark. And I said to him, what a great organization. You got any openings? That that was, <laughs> it was a flipper thing. And at the time I was in school administration in Henrico County. I, I loved education. I love working with young people. Um, I would have been the principal somewhere and and probably probably would have retired 10 years earlier and I retired. But, <laughs> uh, you know, as it was, he said, yeah, we're actually going to expand our staff and we're going to um, we've just moved to Richmond. We're going to expand our staff and, and we're going to hire some people. And he took a card and he flipped it and it landed in my referee bag. And I didn't think too much more about it. We, we got up, went out, refereed the men's game, drove home. 
And a, about a week later, I found that card in my bag and I pulled it out and I just kind of set it on the dresser. And after a few days, I called him up and had a conversation with him. And we met and I saw a couple of Special Olympic um, events. I went out to the summer games, which is here in Richmond. And I just thought it was terrific. And we talked throughout the summer and I was hired that August, which was 1960, 1986. And I think back, I tell people all, I tell you, I tell people all the time, because I have spoken to a ton of groups and I've spoken to a lot of young people's groups, colleges, universities, high schools. And I tell young people, stay awake, <laughs> be, be awake, and pay attention, because you just don't know when something will come your way. If I don't work that game, if it snows two feet and that game is canceled or postponed until a later date and the crews change because of scheduling and I don't go to that game, I don't meet that guy and I don't have that conversation and I don't later come back and reach out to him and get hired at Special Olympics. So I, 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 believe, I believe it was something that was very providential and I think back on it all the time and, and I do. I sincerely tell people, Pay awake and pay attention to who you meet and, and and network and talk to people because you never know when something will strike a chord and, and you will fall in with something that that you will fall in love with. Because since that day, those 36 years ago, I wake up uh, for 36 years. I woke up each morning in mortal fear. I would have to get a real job one day. <laughs> and and I, I never looked at this as a real job. We had fun. Yes, we worked a lot and yeah. we worked hard and we worked a lot of hours and nights and weekends because that's what you do when you do sports or, or recreational activities. But I never looked at it as a job. It was it was fun. And, it, you know, and, and that's the second thing that I always tell young people when I speak to these groups is look for something that you like to do you know, that really rings you a bell because there are too many people that are just working jobs that they really don't love. But if you can find something that is based around something you love and then has even a greater meaning that you can find and apply into it, you will never work a day in your life. You will just have a, a great fun and then can can just work on building teams and, and, and making that thing that you love even better. We... You work, Special Olympics is, is still a, a sports organization. The Hall of Fame is a sports organization. We work in these roles because there's there's something about sports that we are drawn to. You played basketball at Hampton, Sydney. You, ha you have a little bit of a sports background. What is it about sports that, that always kind of tugged at your heartstrings to, to kind of push you into working for an organization like Special Olympics? Well, I think it's the same thing that we tried to pass on and, and – um and give to our special Olympic athletes. The, 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 the things that you learn is sports, the things that you learn in sports are going to be of greater, way greater value to you uh, off the playing field. Now you're going to have some people that are in that we're going to be inducted along with that are professionals. I, I, you know, the Super Bowl was on recently and I happen to see Chris Long on a number of the coverages because he's working in that space. And, um, and, you know, you, you know, there are there are obviously he was in the professional sphere and most people are not the vast majority of people that are involved in playing sports or or encouraging their young people to play sports are not going to be involved at the professional level. But the lessons that you learn, whether they be leadership, whether they be cooperation, whether they be how to share common goals and values, how to get along with people that may not be your favorite people. 
but you have a shared common value that you're working toward. And, and, and it's cooperativeness, it's communication. It's all of those things are the things that we really taught and tried to teach to our athletes because our athletes are in the community. They are in the schools, they are in the workplace. And they are trying every day to be the, the best that they can be there, you know, whether they work in um, the commercial space or whether they work in the retail space or whether they work in food services, whatever they might be in, they want to be the number one person that they can be. And that's what we are trying to teach them to be. And so the lessons that you take out of sports, and that's why I always encourage my kids to get involved in those, the lessons that you take out of sports are going to be ones that you're going to apply in, in whatever it is that you do the rest of your life. You, you've mentioned that Special Olympics itself was, was really about impact and opportunity. Over the course of 36 years, you probably had to, probably had tons of great ideas, some which worked, some which never got off the ground. You had to probably pivot. You had to, you had to go in a different direction. How were you able to consistently, continually uh, increase the amount of impact and opportunity that the organization was providing to the athletes and their families? Yeah, um, here's one of the, you were talking, we just, this little segment about what you learn through sports, the, 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 the basic things you learn. The concept of a team is very important to me. And being there at 30, for 36 years in the last 22 as CEO, I got an opportunity to try to build as good a team as I can build in a number of, of areas, starting first with the staff that we had. Listen, I was around 36 years, 22 as CEO. You know, I've been all over the country and all over the world. I've seen other programs in other places. Um, the only thing that any of the programs have on Virginia is that they might be larger. I mean, we're not, we're not going to be as big as Florida or as big as Texas or as big as California uh, or as big as New York. It was just that, the, you know, they have bigger populations than we have. But, but we had the single best and most progressive and most productive staff uh, in the country. And so one of the things that I am proudest about is that I was able to build a team, okay? And when you build a team, you build not only, you know, and I'll digress for a second. One great, I had a lot of time, to, opportunity to meet a lot of people. And one of the fun people that I ever met was a guy that coached at, he was an assistant at Wake Forest when I first met him through referee. And, and then he was a head coach at UNC Wilmington and then later at Richmond and then at DePaul's named Jerry Wainwright. He probably knew who I'm talking about. And <clears throat> he said to me, you know, you, you, you shine your stars and you ride your horses. And I, that's just a good coaching philosophy uh, about being able to shine your stars and ride your horses. You build a team of leaders you also surround that team of leaders with a bunch of really good people who are going to work on their teams and you build a bench. The building of the bench is a huge concept that I learned in sport, okay? Because it is next man up in many in instances if somebody gets hurt or sick or whatever the situation might be. And we worked hard on our staff to build a bench. When I left Special Olympics, Will, I, I had really two things I wanted to happen. I wanted the succession to be internal. Because we had told our people for 20 years, you're the best group in the country. Mm -hmm. And if we then don't prove that by giving an opportunity internally, then we're lying. You know, we're not really being honest with them. We're just pumping them some sunshine to them. And, I, you know, we, we really felt like we had the best group in the country. The other thing is 
when I left, I wanted no one to notice. Now that sounds silly because people go, well, you've been there for 36 years. Of course, people are going to know you're gone, you know? And I was like, I'm not talking about that. I would like for no one to notice with regard to the performance of the organization. The train should keep chugging merrily down the track. Okay. And so the building of the bench and the staff and the, and the being able for the organization to move on with internal succession and not miss a beat is what has happened. And that has been really, really, uh, that, that has been probably the most fulfilling thing post-work and, and in the retirement that I've been able to look back and see. It, it is, and I told this to David Thomason, who's my successor just recently. I said, believe me, it is so great not to be needed. And and he understood exactly what I meant. We had we developed over the years an enormous fundraising event, which you were going to participate in, but you had some health issues in your family at that particular time, which was the Polar Plunge. And the Polar Plunge at Virginia Beach is a huge economic driver. It puts $10 million into the region down there by the economic impact formula. That, that's a huge win for the economic region. It puts $900,000 into the state tax coffers. So <clears throat> people in local government, state government, they, the, the polar plunge is really a win-win situation. But down there two, three weeks ago, uh, they raised $1.6 million on that one day on in Virginia Beach, which was a record. We had never been beyond a million and a half. We were getting there and then the pandemic set us back a little bit. And then they, they, they surpassed 1.6 million. And that was when I told David, it is so nice not to be needed because the organization continues to grow. The programs continue to grow. We, the basketball championship was just last weekend. They used the Henrico Sports uh, Event Center, which is where the induction ceremony is going to be. Um, we had had this tournament previously for about 20 years in the Fredericksburg Stafford area, but we moved back. Um, with Will Berryman and, and Dennis Bickmeyer and the crew over there at Henrico Sports Center, Henrico Sports and Events, um, and Bollock. It was the biggest basketball championship we had, and it was, uh, a, 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 by all accounts, the best. So for me to look back and see that the things are only getting better is exactly what I wanted to happen, because that was building a team. And it's not just the staff. It was a board. You know, you have a board. Every nonprofit has a board board. Um, then there's an old saying about boards is that you get the board that you deserve. <laughs> yeah. And and so we worked to build a board that was diverse with regard to all, you know, genders or race or whatever. But we worked to build a board who was also diverse in, in the skills that they brought. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I learned so much from these people. We wanted to build a board that could help us, not one who thought they had to bring us along. And make things for us to do, but one who could help us through their skills and their wisdom. And, and we, I mean, it, it is a, it was a great group of people that we came in involved with from major corporations like Geico and Booz Allen and Truist and people like that, that, you know, children's hospital, whoever it might've been that was, um, you know, with us at the time. And so we were able to build that board and we, work to do the same thing with the local programs that run the athlete programs at the county and community level. We did the same thing with our athletes. We built this incredible cadre of athlete leaders who go into the community and speak. I went to so many speaking events where I was not the main event. I was there to introduce one of our athletes who then spoke. Um, and we had some of the great athlete speakers 
in the country. Some of them that live right here in this community and, and others all over the state. Um, I think we had probably the best, what was called global messengers. That was what we called our speakers bureau. And, and they were some of the best in the country. So that was, that was how we were able to build up and get this program moving in the right direction and, and do progressive events and, and events in ways that they were giving athletes an opportunity to win, but an opportunity to learn. And um, it, it comes from building your building your bench and building your teams within the organization. And again, I uh, go back to that Jerry Wainwright quote about shine your stores and ride your horses. Um, and, and that's what we did. And, and we had some great, we had, we had and still have some great stars and a lot of great horses that will be stars in the future. You know, you, you talk about uh, creating a lot of the events and there's a lot of sporting events that the Special Olympics does. You just talked about the, the basketball championships that were hosted last weekend at the Sports and Events Center in Henrico. Again, we'll be we'll be there uh, in, in just a couple months for the 2024 induction. But during your time with Special Olympics, you also did a lot of partnership with schools in Virginia on expanding the access to sports. What did that look like? And and how were you able to get buy-in from the schools, from the districts, uh, to to say that this is what we need? We need to provide this access and inclusivity when it comes to sports here in, amongst our schools. We had always had some participation from schools in what we call the traditional aspect of our program. So just in a simple explanation, the traditional Special Olympics is intellectual disabled athletes competing against intellectual disabled athletes being coached largely by you know, non-disabled coaches and community members and family members and, and, and siblings or whatever. Um, and, and then we begin to move into a specific program called Unified Sports, which is inclusive sport programs, still at the traditional level, but then expanding traditional to make, you know, put non-disabled teammates onto those teams. And then we, we also look back at a time when we were not growing in the younger populations. That was a real problem for us, okay? Um, you had to be seven to be in Special Olympics. We were not growing in the younger populations. We were not in the schools really in the way we wanted to be. It's a difficult population to access. Not every person with an intellectual disability is a middle-class middle Down syndrome kid living in a middle-class neighborhood. Uh, and I'll use an example in your community, going to, you know, Bayside High School or somewhere. They're not, they're not all like that. <clears throat> Most of them live in rural areas. They're hard to access. They get second chances, sometimes even within their own families. And I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not talking bad about our families here. I think our family members are the real heroes in Special Olympics because their whole life is, is, is supporting this population, their, their, their child. But it 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 um it, it 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 moved in a lot of different spaces and and we were not growing in the young spaces so we needed to get into the schools and we thought the best way to get into the schools was going to be in inclusive programs because the schools do not want to just kind of focus the schools were looking for diverse equity opportunities much in the way that we were looking for them and so. There are two ways you can approach this. We could approach it by making people do it. You ask how we got the schools involved in this. We had a lot of meetings with the Virginia High School League. 
And at the time, Ken Tilly was the executive secretary of the Virginia High School League, and I'd known Ken for a long time. And, you know, we were talking about, well, there's been legislation in a couple of states. Maryland had been one um, that kind of mandated this to be done in the schools. Well, you know, the first thing is that a mandate does to the schools is it means you make them spend money, right? Mm -hmm. And that sometimes is not always met with the greatest of enthusiasm. So, we chose to just kind of work more slowly and more measured and recruit these schools um, and, and get them on board because they needed to provide a diverse and equitable situation for all of their students. And they were not providing it for their students with intellectual disability, disabilities or any disabilities. Um, the intellectual disabled kids were still sequestered in the corner of the school and, and they ate in their own little section of the cafeteria and did have a lot of uh, interaction with other folks. Um, and so we began to meet with school districts. They began to meet with school administrators. And it was what Ken Tilly told me exactly was what came true. There are three types of school administrators you're going to meet. There are some that are going to go, oh my gosh, this is the greatest thing ever. Where have you been? You're the answer to our dreams. You know, we can involve our intellectual disabled students in something. We can involve the non-disabled students in something. The non-disabled students can learn about the others. Maybe it'll help with bullying or discrimination. And it's, this is great. And then there were some school administrators who said, uh, I'm up to here in what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to get through tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And that you want me to create a new program for people with intellectual disabilities. And then there was a third group of school administrators or athletic directors who were going to go, and they were going to hold their breath. And they were going to see what happened with the group that decided to participate. <laughs> and so we got a number of schools on board to participate. And unlike most states in the country who started at the high school level, we actually started this process at the element at the elementary level because we found that you could capture an entire school district at the elementary level and at the middle and high school level, the schools were so large and the physical plants were so big, the administrators, the principals there were almost like CEOs. And you almost had to go school to school to school, even within a district to capture the secondary education. But the elementaries could all be, could, there, was, there was a thought that they all wanted to do something together. So we came up with a program and branded it. It's a Special Olympics branded Virginia, a Special Olympics Virginia branded program that many other states use. It's called the Little Feet Meet. Little Feet, F-E-E-T, Little Feet Meet. And in communities where we have large Little Feet Meets, like in the Virginia Beach Public Schools, in Portsmouth, in uh, Henrico, in Hanover, Chesterfield, in the Richmond area, Fairfax, King George, all over the state of Roanoke, uh, Roanoke County, um, all over the state, we went to these larger school districts and said, we have this great program. It's going to involve your students with and without intellectual disabilities. They're all going to work together. They're all going to learn about each other. Um, we can even involve down to two years old with your preschool programs. Um, your kids from two to seven are going to gain seven months in a two-month program. Your autistic kids are going to gain about 10 months in a set in a in a two-month program and we just developed these programs and the little feet meets um the first one we ever had of a large scale was at douglas freeman high school in richmond it's still held at douglas freeman and it's it's like 400 uh plus 
little Special Olympic athletes from every elementary school in Henrico County. Then they get off that bus with an equal number of non-disabled teammates, and they are teammates from those elementary schools. The Little Feet meet is very similar to a field day. It's run, jump, throw. It is not organized competition because we're talking about athletes that might be anywhere from 2 to 11 years of age. And um, they just rotate with their teammates through. When we first started this program, the non-disabled teammates were really almost buddies or guides. They were not really fellow teammates and competitors. After a few years of doing this, the teachers said, we have a suggestion. Uh, the non-disabled kids are telling us they want to play too. They want to compete as teammates. They don't want to, they don't want to be there just to help. They want to be on the team because many of them have found out that as they help these folks learn what, what the events were, these guys got better. And some of them were better than the guys and the buddies were. And they wanted to then start competing as teammates. And so now all of the programs are equal numbers of Special Olympic athletes, equal number of non-disabled teammates. The Little Feet meet still exist. It, I mean, if you were to go into the grocery, I've been to the grocery store here in this community. I live in Chesterfield County. And I have been to the grocery store and I have seen adults, kids, high school kids who were volunteers, little kids who were participants wearing Little Feet meet t-shirts. And it's very validating to see that the Little Feet meets have, have, have um, you know, become a kind of a life of its own in communities all over the state. Then we moved into middle school and high school with more competitive opportunities, specifically track and basketball in the traditional sphere. But one of the great sports that we have specifically at the high school level is bocce. And I know your folks watching this podcast will think, wait a minute, aren't they playing bocce down at the Outer Banks um, on the beach with, with, a, with a you know cooler full of beer? Yeah, they are. But this game of uh, almost a kind of a lawn bowling type of game, it, it can be organized with four-man teams, two Special Olympic athletes, two non-disabled teammates. To see the communication between a four-man team, because they're no, the, the coaches are not actively coaching them in the bocce. The teams are, are deciding the strategies and in, in, in what the, the tactics themselves, and they're working on it. And it's, it's, it's very cool to see kids at the high school and middle school level communicating as teammates with these kids and deciding together how they're going to attack an opponent or how they're going to attack the game. So, again, all of those things we talked about, learning the value of people, communicating with people, learning to get on with people who are different than you, learning to get along with people you thought you'd never associate with, and being able to grow and, and be together as one has been great. And we, we've had parents tell us, thank you for doing this program, because my child has never been part of the school, never. And now my child is part of the school. My child walks into the down the hall in the daytime and people say hey how you doing they know their names they sit with them in the cafeteria they ask them how they did in the ball game or the track and field meet and it's just been really 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 great and i had a great great opportunity my wife was a reading specialist in Chesterfield County. And so a, a number of schools occasionally in Chesterfield County would call me up and say, hey, can you come over and be a guest reader on Dr. Seuss Day? I'm going to go read a Dr. Seuss book to these kids. And so the book that I chose was this was the Sneetches because it's about people with differences, right? Some yeah. people have stars in their belly and some people don't. It's about getting along with different kinds of people. And the first thing I would say when I would go into this 
elementary school class, could be second grade, could be fourth grade, could be fifth grade. I would say to these kids, how many of you have, have ever been involved in the little feet meet and literally half the hands in the classes would go up because all the kids had been involved in the little feet meet. And that was a great little base on which to read the book, The Sneetches, about people with differences coming together and all being one. And it was, it, this is the kind of stuff that's, that's really great because the school administrators tell us, whether it's middle or high or elementary, the real benefit goes to the kids without the disabilities. Mm -hmm. because they are learning about a population that they have been bullying, making fun of, not valuing, not interfacing with. The Special Olympic athletes are who they are. All they want is an opportunity to be your classmate. And the non-disabled kids gave them that opportunity. And so the school administrators always said, oh, we know we're helping the Special Olympic athletes, but our non-disabled kids are the ones who are really growing. And we go around now. I was at the General Assembly last week because I told you, I, the one little piece of activity I've retained is as the lobbyist for Special Olympics last year and this year. And I was down there last week and I was in the office of one of the um, uh, senators in the state of Virginia and her, and I gave the card to her legislative aide and her legislative aide said, oh, I was a little feed volunteer at, at James River High School. And that was just, it was funny because that's the experience that we have now. We see people involved in businesses. We see people involved in other lines of work that were kids 15 years ago, we started these programs, and now they're in their 30s, and they're working in leadership positions, or they're working along in their careers, and the one thing that they say that they really remember from their high school is the uh, the Little Feet Meets and the Unified Champion School programs, which are the inclusive programs. So it must be true what the administrators said. It's benefiting the non-disabled kids even more than it is the ones with disabilities. Well, it, it builds that sense of community, uh, which is obviously an, an, an intended consequence. There are no unintended consequences with the with everything that you just listed from the, the programs in the schools and, and kind of bringing the two communities, the, the intellectually disabled and the non-disabled communities together. But when you look at the events, and, and I'll, I'll get you out of here on this question, when you look at the events that Special Olympics would put together, whether it was a fundraising event or whether it was a competition event, what did you want the athletes and their families to take away from those events? If you could pinpoint one thing, what did you want them to take away? All right, I'm gonna add in one broader group, <laughs> the athletes and their families, and that is the volunteers who are participating yeah. in the event, okay? Mm -hmm. I told you earlier, Special Olympics is not an event, it's an experience, mm -hmm. okay? And so we wanted, we knew the athletes were gonna have a great experience. This is their program. They love this program. This is. For our athletes, this program is their circle of friends. They have one very important circle that they all live within, and that's their family. And when they step outside of the family, Special Olympics for, for pretty much all of our athletes is the next biggest and most important family and circle that they operate within. So they're going to have a great experience. We want the family members to be involved. We don't want this to be a respite program for the families. We want family members involved, okay? Because once we got family members involved and they really started being involved with their kids, and even before then, one of the most amazing things, experiences I ever had, and I had it a thousand times, but the first time I had it, it shocked me, is when an athlete, uh, when a parent of a severely intellectually disabled athlete says to me, 
this is the greatest thing that ever, that, that my child is the greatest thing that ever happened to me. Now, I want you to think about that because they live in, a, especially big af, uh, parents live in a world we don't live in. There's a, their, their parent, their parenting and caregiving is 24 seven forever. Okay. And, and you think, wow, what a burden. And when they tell you, no, no, it's the greatest joy we ever had. It's, it's, it's an enlightening experience. And so we wanted family members to be involved so that ones that weren't saying that to us would be telling us that also. Um, and because our family members, like I told you earlier, they're the real heroes of this program. Our athletes are who they are, just like in their schools. It's, the, it's, it's benefiting the non-disabled kids. In the families, our athlete, our family members are the real heroes because they're the ones who are 24-7, 365, a life that the rest of us don't really share. And I spent 36 years telling parents, I imagine that's difficult. I never told a parent, I know how you feel. I got that lesson taught to me at the World Games in 1987 is the first World Games I ever went to was at Notre Dame. And we had and one of the people that was working as part of the track and field administrative crew was a guy named Jim Santos. Now, your track and field people out there will know that Jim Santos was a legendary college track and field and amateur track and field coach. He was a jumps coach. He would have been on the 1980 Olympic uh, jumps coaching team, except for that they were boycotted out of the Olympics um, in 1980 and he didn't get to go. But he coached at a number of universities and colleges um, and, and world games uh, and stuff around and trade. And he had a parent. He was a parent in our program. He had a son, Dallas Santos, was an athlete in our program. And he told me standing in the Notre Dame track and field stadium one day, he said, let me just give you a piece of advice. You might be here for five years or you might be here for 25 years. Doesn't make a difference how long you're here. Never tell me that you know how I feel. And that was one of the most impactful lessons and I never forgot that. And so I never told the family members, I know how you feel because I don't know how they feel. Our family members are heroes. So we wanted them to have a good experience. But it was of paramount importance to us that the volunteers on the, you know, had a good experience as well. We developed a, a very revolutionary event um, in about 2010. Uh, it's going on today. It's about 14 years old now. <clears throat> and it's an invitational tennis tournament. And we did it for a number of reasons. Um, we had a guy living up in Crozet, uh, John Freed. He's now 61. At the time that we started this, John was in his 40s. Um, and he had been for about 15, 20 years, the number one tennis player in Special Olympics. Um, he plays at the Boar's Head, lives up in the Crozet area. If you saw John playing, if you just walked in the Boar's Head and saw John playing on a court with some with somebody who was not disabled, you just would think he was a really good, you know, 5.0 tennis player. You know, he's really good. And when he would come to our events, our summer games or our state tournaments, he would have no one to play because there's nobody as good as him. And we could bring in a college player to play him or a high school player to play him or a good amateur player to play him. And we did that. But we also found out from our really good athletes that don't forget we're special Olympic athletes and this is our program and we love this program and we love to compete with other special Olympic athletes. So we developed a tournament in Charlottesville where we were going to bring in the top 32 players in the country. We thought there were going to be 32 other players like John. We found out very quickly that the top of the pyramid is very small. 
in especially in tennis, which is not a huge sport. And there were probably only four or five other players in the country as good as John. But we found enough players that were good and competent to fill out the field at 32. And it suddenly dawned on us, okay, we need to go and we need to have an additional piece of, of, of data here. We need to find out if these athletes in the lower half of the draw or these athletes under the top five or six that we had that were super good, can they get better and be that good? Mm -hmm. And can the ones in the bottom half of the draw get better and advance into the top half of the draw? So we begin to, we begin to now work in performance and fitness and, and, and we decided we would work with these higher skilled athletes because their parents and their coaches were a little more committed sometimes than than the lower skilled athletes were just because it was they, they were more in they were more um used to taking them to places to get involved in opportunities because sometimes they couldn't find competition within their locality. So we brought in players from all over the country. And we had to have a name for this tournament, you know. And so we came up with the name of the tournament was going to be the experience. And the thought of this was we were going to build the experience around John Freed, like the Masters was built around Bobby Jones, okay? And, and you're going to come to the Boar's Head, which is John's house, and you're going to play tennis against John, and it's going to be a great fun, and we're going to find out how good you are. We're going to get a lot of data. We're going to talk to the parents. We're going to talk to the coaches that come in with them. And we found out that every year when these players would come back to the experience, the players who were below that five or that really good five or six, they came back, they were better, their bodies were different, their skills were more enhanced, they moved better. And we said to the parents, what happened to this guy? You know, he was a pudgy little guy from Indiana last year. What happened? And they said, well, he came here and he saw those five or six guys at the top of the pyramid. And he said, how do I do that? And so we came back and we got him up tennis coach and we joined a gym he goes to the gym five times a week and he works out and he's lost 20 pounds he moves better and we we found players who were probably the 20th or 22nd ranked players in this original group of 32 and all of a sudden they're in the top half of the draw and all of a sudden they're in the top half a dozen players. And all of a sudden we go to the USA games or the world games. And here they are playing tennis for their state against the same guys they play in January in, in Charlottesville. And it was, it was really great because we found out our players can get healthier and they can get fitter and they can get better because of coaching and they have a chance to win. And these parents would swear to us that their child was higher cognitively because he was healthier and fitter than he was before. They were saying he's, he, well say he was smarter, but they're just saying he's cognitively stronger because he got healthier and fitter. And so we, this is a program that has developed around the country and through work with the international office to try to create a series of what we call performance standards not only for the higher skilled athletes, but for the large block that's really in the middle of the bell curve and for the lower skilled ones that are at the end. Because can you now take a guy who runs the 50 meter dash 
in 30 seconds. You got that? That's pretty slow, okay? Can you take that guy? Can you get him to run 25? Can you get him to run 20? And in order to do that, he's got to exercise. He's got to work out. It may be an advanced exercise program. It may be something that the local program is doing. But he's got to exercise and he's got to move. And he's got to commit to it. And he's got to do it on a regular basis. And now he's healthier and he's and he's fitter and he's lost weight or she's lost weight. Um, and it's just been it's been a revelation. So, again, we, we love that little mantra, healthier, fitter, chance to get better and win. Because winning is on the playing field. But more importantly, winning is off the playing field because we had we we've been into workplaces and had. Uh, managers who manage our guys in the workplace say dependable shows up every day great with the other customers remember we talked about what sports teaches people mm -hmm. he's dependable he works great with the other customers he shows up every day i wish i had 10 more employees like him or like her and that's that is is an incredibly fulfilling thing when you when you move outside of the program into the workplace and people are telling you you know, what you're doing is working. So in order for that whole tournament in, in Charlottesville to work, the volunteers that were working that tournament, whether they be Boris Head members, whether they be kids who were ball boys out of the school, whether they be, um, you know, uh, just other community volunteers who came in to work the event, we wanted them just as much as our athletes and our parents to have the experience. And they they ragged us for a couple of years. They They said, why we call in this tournament the experience? This should be called the Boris Hit Invitational because it's our event, you know, it's our place. And after a few years, I would have people come walk by me during the tournament and say, okay, we understand. We now know why it's called the experience, you know. And when we first got all the school kids involved, bringing in, you know, 50 school kids in shifts to be ball, ball boys and girls, because when you play in the tournament in Charlottesville, this is a new experience for our players. They don't pick a ball up off the floor for three days, okay? There's some kid running over there and picking the ball up and then running off the side of the court, kneeling down. And so it's like a – I mean, it's a it's a really cool thing. And when we first wanted to get the school kids involved, it was going to be a lot of work for the volunteer group. And one of the volunteers stood up, stood up and said, people, there's a reason we call this tournament the experience, and we want these young kids to have the experience too because they're going to be us in 20, 30 years. And so it's – that's what we want. We want people to realize that there is a, when you come to a Special Olympic event, whether it be the experience in Charlottesville or whether it be the Little Feet meet at Lansdowne High School in Virginia Beach, or whether it be the summer games at the University of Richmond, we want you to feel like you have stepped into a bubble, okay, that is a bubble of equity. So that whether you are a volunteer or a parent or a staff person or a board person or one of our athletes, you are all equal. You are all on equal footing. Mm -hmm. And we would tell our volunteers every time, don't leave this event. Don't leave it without having met and talked with our athletes and built a relationship with at least one of them. Okay. And we have athletes and volunteers from every event that we run, big and small, who you see later. And they've been communicating via email or texting with our our athletes are like everybody else. You know, they got cell phones and computers and they text and they call people and they communicate. And, you know, we have 
volunteers from all over that are that that communicate regularly with our athletes because they become friends with them. And that's what we wanted. Because then if a young person is a friendly, he'll be more likely when he gets older to include somebody in his life or his business. If a volunteer who works in a business has the great experience, they'll be more likely to bring these people into the workplace. We've seen all this happen, Will. And it's it's it, we call it the magic, but it's really because people have the experience. And if they have the experience, there's a greater understanding uh, to what what it's all about. That's why I said earlier, I got in here because, you know, started working 36, now 38 almost years ago. And, um, and I didn't really realize it at first. Because whether you are on the staff or whether you are on the board or whether you are a parent or whether you are uh, in a volunteer group, the experiential nature of this program and the the opportunity to build a relationship with someone who is different than you um, builds a level of inclusion in your brain that is not normally there because normally by nature, we are exclusionary. You know, birds of a feather, feather flock together, but we're combating that. We want people to include people in their lives in as meaningful a way as they can. Well, and and these are long-winded explanations. I well, apologize, it, Will, it, but it's 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 a lot to unpack here because that's yes, it's sports, and and I and I, and I I thank you for this induction because I look at being included in this group as a as a validation for this entire program. Because it it tells you, and the first person of it, it tells you that this program is really good and it is about the power and the inclusive nature of sport. The first person that I saw after you called me and, and told me about being in the hall was Tom Yeager. Okay. And we saw each other at, at the funeral of a mutual friend. And he, he said, and I've known Tom for years a super guy and we did stuff with every colonial athletic association school and we did stuff at the conference we would have our athletes come out and address the semifinal crowd on semifinal day which is traditionally the largest crowd at the tournament before the four main teams had gotten knocked out we would have one of our athletes come out and and address the crowd for a five-minute message during halftime I mean, it was it was a cool it was some cool stuff that we did with the Colonial, and and so Tom is a believer in what we do, and he knows what we do, and uh, and he just said to me, I'm I'm really glad you got in, because he said I I I I know from the involvement that we've had through our member schools and just through our conference staff, he said I know that the importance of sport and Special Olympic being a marriage that produces inclusion, and and I I appreciate that. And I appreciate the fact that people see that. Well, you, I mean, you, you mentioned it multiple times and, and we'll go ahead and wrap up, but you mentioned it multiple times that, and, and you, you made me a believer too, that it's an experience, not an event. And it's that it's those lifelong connections that you kind of walked us through how, how an athlete would go from being just an athlete to now they're working with somebody who volunteered there, or they're working with another organization that had a connection to the organization and it's just that lifelong experience and that lifelong community that this has built. And, and I just think that as people are continuing to learn more about your impact with the organization and the organization's overall impact, 
I think it's it's 100% justified that this is why you're the 2024 Distinguished Virginian. And so I know it's a beautiful day outside. I know that you probably want to be on the golf course and not necessarily talking to me. You've seen a lot of emails from me, gotten a lot of text messages, but I do appreciate you taking some time today to join us on Hall Call and just kind of walk us through exactly why this organization has meant so much to you and the impact it has made. So thank you so much for joining us today. Well, I will. I appreciate it. And, and uh, I just want everybody to realize that sport is a wonderful thing. It's a great way to engage people and you can engage them for a whole lot of purposes. And, and we thought that the inclusive nature of this program was really going to be paramount. And um, it's a pleasure. It's, it's, it's wonderful to be included. Like I said, I look at I told everybody on our, all of my former team members and board members. I said, look, I look at this as a team award. Uh, I, I'll accept this award. But the only reason it's here is because we have these great teams of people. And, and, and primarily the reason I'm here is because we have uh, as spectacular as the athletes are that you see on TV. If you come and you really get involved and pay attention, uh, our athletes are every bit as spectacular, whether they are a motorized wheelchair racer or a young person with crutches running in the 10 meter assisted event, or whether they are Karen Dickerson, who has run the Boston Marathon twice in under 3.30, or whether they are Grace Ann Braxton, who is the number one, has been the number one Special Olympics female golfer in Special Olympics for years and was inducted into the Virginia Golf Hall of Fame last year. Um, again, we have athletes at all different levels, and that's the great thing about sport. We can bring them all together, and we can bring them together with you. Well, we're we're hoping that a lot of them will come and to to your event on on April twentieth. We're fifty three days away today from today to the twenty twenty four induction, and it, it's it's a it's a it, connecting the two organizations, the Special Olympics and the Virginia Sports Hall of Fame. I think is very important because the power of sports is so important, especially here in Virginia. And so we're thrilled. We can't wait. We'll be seeing you a lot more of you over the next couple months. Thank you again for taking some time to join us today. And, and of course, I'd like to thank everybody who has watched and followed along or will listen to this in podcast form uh, to this Hall Call interview series. I'd also like to thank all of our sponsors. Of course, you see them over my shoulders. Without them, we couldn't do what we do. Be sure to stay up to date on all things Virginia Sports Hall of Fame and the Hall Call interview series and podcast by following social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube. You can also listen to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, and SoundCloud. Our next episode is Tuesday, March 5th, where we'll catch up with two former players for uh, 2024 inductee Hal Nunley. Uh, we'll talk to Reed O'Brien and Paul Gartland. Uh, so we'll get a little bit of insight into Coach Nunley's uh, coaching legacy as he goes into the Hall of Fame this April as well. Once again, I am Will Driscoll with the Virginia Sports Hall of Fame. Whatever you do, participate, don't spectate, and we'll see you next time.